You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 15th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up on today's programme, Taiwan's electorate votes in favour of maintaining independence from China, much to Beijing's ire. Taiwan has never been a country. It wasn't in the past, and it certainly won't be in the future. As Republicans in Iowa brave record freezing temperatures to caucus for their candidate, we look at how local media still plays a crucial role in the state. Folks just really wanted something tangible out of the world around them. They wanted to go to the corner store and pick something up and bring it home. They wanted a physical artifact. Plus, Guatemala's delayed presidential inauguration, an update from Davos, and which design fairs you need to check out. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Vincent McAvinney. Well, over the weekend, Taiwanese voters chose pro-sovereignty candidate William Lai as their president in a historic election, cementing a path that is increasingly divergent from China. The move angered Beijing, which issued a statement after the results, insisting that Taiwan is part of China. While they've called for peaceful reunification, China has also not ruled out the use of force. Taiwan's election is a regional affair within China. No matter what the results of the election are, they cannot change the basic fact that there is only one China and Taiwan is a part of it. Monocle writer Naomi Xu Elegant is down the line from Tainan now, where the president-elect was formerly mayor. Naomi, thank you for joining us. Firstly, how have people across Taiwan and there in Tainan reacted to the result? Good morning, Vincent. I think um, in terms of the polling, it basically played out exactly as was expected. So there was no landslide shocks or anything like that. But um, I was in uh, Taipei, the capital, over the weekend, and there you could really feel the energy. Uh, The night before the election, I was at a TPP rally, which is the kind of upstart third party that has a lot of support among the younger generation. Uh, And then the next day at the DPP victory rally, again, you know, the energy was really palpable. People were very, very happy. Uh, William Lai came out to congratulate everyone. Um, It was a great atmosphere. And this is an unprecedented third consecutive term for Mr. Lai's party. In his victory remarks, he signaled that this was an irreversible trajectory away from China. Do you think we'll see much difference, though, in his new administration to the outgoing one, not just on China, but on other policies, particularly, as you've mentioned there, the disgruntled young people? I mean, it's interesting. As you say, it's unprecedented in that, uh, you know, no party has ever uh, been elected for a third term in a row like this. But at the same time, he was VP uh, under under the last president or the outgoing president, rather. So in terms of foreign policy, I think he's going to pretty much stick to the same road, uh, domestic policy as well. Uh, one of the things that probably will affect it more is, I would say, the U.S. election, because depending on who wins that, I think uh, because the U.S. has kind of gained this much more central role in cross-strait relations over the last four years, whoever is in office there could really uh, play a part in how Taiwan and China kind of play off on each other over the next few years. And what's been the reaction from governments around the world, in particular the US, which under Biden seems to have moved to a sort of purposeful strategic ambiguity on how it might respond to a Chinese invasion attempt? 
That's right. Um, I think that the U.S. has, you know, sent out its usual congratulations on holding a peaceful democratic election. Uh, a U.S. delegation is now in Taiwan as we speak. It's not officially from the Biden administration because that, for obvious reasons, you know, they're not diplomatic official allies would be pretty problematic. But it's uh, it's former U.S. officials. Uh, this is something they have also done in the past. So it's kind of not necessarily unprecedented, but uh, because so many more eyes internationally are watching and because China is always you know, sending its kind of irate responses. Um, obviously, there's there's always that kind of background pressure. And we've heard a flavour of those responses from China. What have people in Taiwan made of them? And the news today that Nauru is to cut diplomatic ties with Taiwan in favour of Beijing. Yeah, so I think with, with the Nauru news, it's pretty interesting. I think in this particular case, it did seem like it came as a bit of a shock for the Taiwanese government, just because it was so fast. The the government said that Nauru actually congratulated Taiwan on the election over the weekend. And now it's Monday and they're, they're suddenly saying we're cutting ties. Uh, you know, they're closing the embassy. It's really, really immediate. Uh, and it seems like what happened in the in the background is China basically offered, you know, economic incentives that this tiny Pacific island found hard to refuse, which is how a lot of this diplomacy does work. Uh, so, you know, although the, the timing, I think, is a bit of a shock and definitely deliberate in terms of coming right after the election, Taiwan also has been used to these uh, kind of back and forth ping ponging diplomatic allyship changes that uh, that China has more power to affect because it has, you know, money to, to spend. And young people in Taiwan wanted the election to be about more than just China, with significant numbers of structural and employment opportunity issues. Uh, what does the new president offer for them? That is definitely, I would say, a big challenge that he has going forward. Um, I, the DPP's majority or voting share from 2020 compared to now dropped a lot. And I think a lot of that is young people who have not been super satisfied with the way that the government has dealt with issues like housing prices, which are pretty astronomical. Uh, you know, wage growth hasn't been that great. There's a lot of education policy that could be better. Uh, so I think he's really trying to focus on those things. He's promised to build more social housing, um, you know, university subsidies. Uh, he also wants to increase trade with countries apart from China, which is actually Taiwan's biggest trading partner. Um, so hopefully that will kind of trickle down into into economic growth and, and wages for, for local Taiwanese. And how much of an impact did the growing number of former Hong Kongers have on this decision? Because in some ways you could describe this as a movie they've already seen play out. Yeah, definitely in 2020, Hong Kong was kind of foremost on the minds of a lot of Taiwanese voters because that was just after the 2019 protests in Hong Kong, a lot of the campaign posters actually had references to the Hong Kong, uh, Hong Kong movement. And even even on this weekend, I saw some stickers relating to the Hong Kong protests. So I think symbolically, it's very, very powerful as kind of an example of people with democratic urges that, you know, you see how Beijing responds to that. In terms of the actual Hong Kong population here, uh, I mean, it's it's pretty small. A lot more people have migrated in the last few years. But uh, a lot of them are on temporary uh, visas. So, you know, they're not actually voters. But I think, you know, in terms of democratic culture, they do play a, a growing part. Thanks, Naomi. That was Naomi Xu Elegant in Hainan, Taiwan. Now here's Laura Kramer with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Vincent. Hamas is due to reveal the fate of three hostages it is holding in Gaza, who appeared in a video released by the group on Sunday. Hundreds gathered in Tel Aviv over the weekend calling on Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to do more to free those still in Hamas captivity.
India's main opposition party has begun a march across the country to generate support ahead of a spring general election. Members and supporters of the Indian National Congress will travel by bus and on foot over two months. Polling puts the party behind Prime Minister Modi's Hindu nationalist BJP. The president of Iceland says the country faces a daunting period of upheaval after volcanic lava destroyed several houses in the town of Grindavik. Residents had been ordered to evacuate in November after a volcano on a peninsula near the capital Reykjavik showed signs of an imminent eruption. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Vincent. Thanks, Laura. You're back with the briefing on Monocle Radio. Today, global media attention is on Iowa caucuses, which will see voters in the Midwestern states select their preferred candidates for November's presidential election, will kick off the 2024 campaign. Our correspondent, Tomas Lewis, spoke to journalists at two of Iowa's best-read news outlets for their view on the state and on the state of its media. Well, the recent story of the media here in Iowa over the past few years is pretty similar to that in other parts of the United States and indeed elsewhere, particularly for those publications in print. But one newsroom that's bucked that trend over the past few years is Little Village. It was launched in 2001 and is an alt-monthly culture and politics magazine. And I've made the drive from Des Moines today here to Iowa City to come and meet the team behind one of Iowa's most popular print publications. In a moment, we'll hear from its news director, Paul Brennan. But first, I spoke to publisher Genevieve Trainer, who explained why Little Village's readership has grown and grown over the past few years. I think people do believe in print. Newspapers are different, but especially magazines like ours that are keepsake that, you know, they last a whole month, you know, people collect them. And there was something that we saw during the pandemic when everyone was so isolated from each other that folks just really wanted something tangible out of the world around them. They wanted to go to the corner store and pick something up and bring it home. They wanted a physical artifact. One thing that I'd say is that while it's always sort of been news and culture, I would say that over the course of the pandemic, the local readers really came to to trust us more as a news source. We went from being known for our cultural coverage to to being a more trusted news source. A lot of that is thanks to Paul as news director and the happenstance of the pandemic. But yeah, it's it's been an interesting change to watch. One of the things I did that people responded to is that during the pandemic, I covered every press conference. And there was a stretch there where it was a, at least one press conference a day the governor gave for three months straight. Our governor, she speaks in, let's say, an idiosyncratic way. I would make every day my own transcript of what the governor said. It took hours and hours and hours And so unlike a lot of places that would just offer summaries and summaries that sort of rationalized what she was saying, I would report on what she actually said, big chunks of text. We're in obviously coming up to the Iowa caucuses. How how is Little Village approaching that so far? Does it feel like a different time as well this time around? Well, uh, yeah, I I think I, I think we're approaching it with a certain air of amusement. There is no effective contest on the Republican side, which is sort of remarkable considering the man is facing 91 felony charges at the moment. 
But on the other hand, when he was elected president the first time, he was in the middle of settling a lawsuit for fraud from Trump University, and that didn't dissuade the state of Iowa in the general election for voting for him. He did not win the Iowa caucus last time. Ted Cruz did. On the Democratic side, well, last time we had, I believe, 19 or at one point 20 candidates, but one of them never made it out of Florida to come here. And Biden came in fourth, which was his best showing ever in the Iowa caucuses. So Biden has no particular connection to Iowa. And when he was here in uh, 2019, leading up to the uh, caucus at the beginning of February in 2020, he was clearly half-assing it. He was not putting in the effort. I don't know how many times I saw him, but he was not putting in the effort that other candidates were. He seemed sort of bored by the whole thing. Well, you've talked a lot, actually, about Iowa sort of changing quite a lot, whether that means that Iowa's becoming more polarised politically or whether people just are quite proud of having this first-in-the-nation thing and actually do go and sit down and sort of listen, whether people take it seriously in terms of their their role in the, the process. It's hard to answer that question because people very much want to be that person, but it doesn't seem to pan out. I think they go like you would see a top 40 band, not a band that you're a fan of, you know, when you're comparing it to shows. When you're in the presence of somebody with as enormous a personality as these politicians have, it can be more overwhelming than just, you know, reading about it in the newspaper. And, and I think that there's a need across the country, you know, certainly not in Iowa alone, but across the country, just a need to educate kids and adults in in how to politics. <laughs> Genevieve Trainer and Paul Brennan there of Little Village, one of Iowa's most popular print publications, speaking to me at their headquarters here in Iowa City. Well, let's make the trip to Des Moines now to assess just how unusual a caucus season it is this time around here in Iowa. I'm going to meet Kathy Bradovich. She is one of the most recognisable political columnists here in the state and is the head of the new online news service, Iowa Capital Dispatch. More than 2,200 newspapers have closed in this country in the last two decades. And beyond that, newspapers that have managed to stay open have laid off tens of thousands of journalists. So that leaves a lot of gaps in terms of topics that the existing newspapers and other media are able to cover. It's an unusual season in terms of the caucuses. It's been a sort of a, a race about, you know, can anyone beat Trump? And at the moment, the answer looks like no. When we talk to people at Trump rallies or rallies for some of the other candidates, we do run into people from Nebraska and Missouri and, you know, South Dakota, neighboring states quite often. Maybe some people take it for granted, but new people are discovering, you know, just how cool that is, you know, every four years. And, you know, young voters see that they have an opportunity to actually have a voice and speak to these presidential candidates and tell them what they care about or ask them questions. I mean, there's a monolith in terms of particularly politics in the state, but there's still some pretty hot blue spots, um, especially the biggest cities tend to be uh, Democrat controlled and people are not necessarily on board with everything that the Republican leadership is doing on particular issues. Thomas Lewis reporting from Iowa there. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. 
To Central America now, where anti-corruption crusader Bernardo Aravallo has been sworn in as Guatemala's president in the early hours of Monday after a chaotic inauguration that was delayed for hours by a last-ditch attempt by congressional opponents to weaken his authority. Dr. Christopher Sabatini is a fellow, a senior fellow for Latin America at Chatham House. Thank you for joining us. Firstly, can you explain what's been happening over the past 24 hours? Well, effectively, the the the, the attorney general uh, and the Supreme Court have thrown up a series of obstacles uh, to allow Bernardo Arevalo to be sworn in and also his party to sort of assume uh, Congress. Uh, they had disqualified the party. He has only has about 23 members uh, that have been elected to the Congress of his party, Semilla. They had disqualified Semilla as a political party claiming, uh, with very little evidence, uh, that the signatures had been um, forged on, on their petition to join. Um, and so they were the, the Congress people were allowed to join the Congress, but as independents. And if you're an independent, you can't be sworn in to any sort of committees or any ranking position in the Congress. So basically the the, the old guard, um, the corrupt old guard, I should add, um, were preventing them from being signed in. And, and But in a surprise resolution, after the nine hours that you mentioned, Vincent, the um, they did allow uh, one of Bernardo Oleros, the, the now president, um, one of his party members to become the president of the Congress. Uh, so an interesting development, but one that really brought came down to the wire and thwarted attempts by the old guard to to basically undermine the authority of the president and his party. And what will this mean for his term, having overcome this difficulty right at the onset? <laughs> He's overcome many difficulties to get here. He polled actually a surprising second in the first round last year uh, and then won overwhelmingly. Uh, and then they've thrown up all these obstacles, whether claiming that he was going to be stripped of his immunity, seizing ballot boxes and claiming voter fraud, despite the fact that the EU and the Organization of American States had declared the election free and fair. And he doesn't have a majority in Congress. It is going to be a very difficult ride for him. He is an anti-corruption campaigner, an academic, a former career foreign service officer, diplomat. Um, but he's not going to have a tough time. He's going up against a system uh, in which a very sinister nexus of business elites, narcotics traffickers, and politicians uh, have kept a lock on the economy, the society, and the state. And he's going to be taking them on. And he, it, it's going to be a tough ride. And what has he promised exactly in his campaign that has all of that opposition so fearful? Well, first of all, his anti-corruption credentials obviously puts a lot of these uh, officials uh, on notice. Uh, in fact, the United States put two-thirds of the Congress uh, on uh, sanctions, uh, Magnitsky sanctions, uh, because of their efforts to undermine the election. Also, a, a close confidant of the, of the outgoing president, former president, Giammatai, uh, it was also put on sanctions. You know, he's he's promising to pursue the corrupt and to clean up um, uh, you know, rent-seeking uh, in, in Guatemala. But at the same time, he's also promising to increase education and healthcare spending and try to address people's concerns over economic security uh, and social mobility. Uh, but it is, again, an, an, an attempt to weaken him. The Congress, uh, just before he was sworn in yesterday, uh, cut the budgets for uh, education and health precisely to try to weaken his ability to carry out his campaign promises. And what does this tell us about the health of Guatemala's democracy and the rule of law that this last-ditch attempt was uh, made? It's a good it's a good question, Vincent. Let me focus on the positives here first. Uh, often in Latin America, we focus on all the negatives, such as the tragedies in Ecuador last week. Um, the fact that this outsider candidate could mobilize youth and indigenous and capture popular demands for change is a very positive 
uh, uh, sign. It, it is unexpected given the levels of corruption and dysfunction in Guatemala. Um, it should give us all a certain pause and hope for democracy in Guatemala. But uh, as you imply, the forces that be, uh, as they would say in, in Spanish, factores de poder, uh, are, are clearly arrayed against him. Luckily, uh, the European Union, um, the UK, the United States, even Brazil are firmly behind him and support him in this transition. So while he's going to have some very difficult domestic uh, forces arrayed against him, uh, including even within the Congress, uh, he at least has enjoys international backing and the backing of, of, of in many cases, a, a newly resurgent uh, uh, demographic that's taking democracy uh, seriously and wants to promote change. And what tangibly can those new international partners do to help him? Uh, the first is, is quite frankly, is, is support him in terms of finances. Um, it, Guatemala, it, it, let's take the case of the health and education budget cuts that I mentioned. Uh, the EU and, and other donors should step up quickly to try to fill the gap that the opposition left there so that he can start to deliver on his promises. The second is uh, work closely with him on reorganizing and even trying to create and provide uh, legal support for uh, the prosecuting these cases of corruption, which he's going to take on. Uh, and the last is, is just in terms of international support. Uh, there a, was a great article in the Washington Post about everything the US and the EU had done to try to ensure that he could uh, assume uh, the presidency yesterday uh, in terms of applying international pressure, sanctioning corrupt officials that were trying to block his accession to power. That needs to continue because not, we're not through the woods yet on this. Uh, so it, it's going to be a long row to hoe. But I do think, you know, with the international support, his uh, you know, constituency, which is clearly mobilized during the nine hours that you mentioned that the Congress was trying to elect a new leader, they were outside the Congress demanding change. Um, yeah, I think that it, it's a new moment. The question is, can it be captured um, and will it be supported sufficiently by the international community? And finally, there's a link to another presidential race this weekend at Taiwan. Guatemala's new president has promised to improve links with China whilst also maintaining diplomatic ties with Taiwan. Is that possible? I think it is. I, you know, and I think, you know, even among some conservatives uh, internationally, they're saying that, you know, maybe it wouldn't be a bad idea if, if Guatemala uh, embraced uh, Beijing. Because uh, Beijing can provide funds in ways Taiwan can't. Taiwan's typical sort of reward for recognizing it is something like a football field or something rather, you know, infrastructural and symbolic. Um, whereas China can provide real money, and I think there's a certain acceptance that they they need to do, they need that funding, and they can do that. So I, I think it will help, and, and I think Taiwan right now is not in a position, having already lost one recognition in his column as of in the last 24, 48 hours, it's not going to be in a position to make these demands and, and or even provide these incentives so that Guatemala continues to, to recognize Taipei. Dr. Chris Sabatini, thank you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. The Menu, bringing you Monocle's recipe for the best in drinking and dining. We make entertaining a doddle. It's incredibly easy to make. With expert opinions. You can use fish fillets, which you grill in the oven or pan fry. A bit of seasoning. Lots of lime, a lot of cracked pepper, and a bit of good olive oil. And plenty of spice. And then you cook it in caraway and seven spice, as well as something sweet. Then you take a big pot of mascarpone and spoon it into your egg yolk. And maybe even... A little bit nuts. You take it out, you top it with some pine nuts and you're good to go. 
It's a recipe that's guaranteed to impress. It's slightly controversial, but it's the one thing that has surprised the most people when they eat it. Premiering live every Friday at 2000 London time, midday in Los Angeles, or downloadable wherever you get your podcasts. Now, there are two major French design fairs coming up this month Maison et Objet and Paris Deco Off. Monocle's design editor Nick Manise is here to tell us what we can expect. So, what are these fairs? Very, very good question. I mean, I, I think starting with Maison, that might be uh, the way to go. That's sort of that's sort of the big international fair that that draws everyone in. That's held in the uh, uh, Nord Villapont uh, trade halls uh, north of the north of Paris. It's it's uh, I guess uh, like a Salone del Mobile sort of competitor. It, it's it's a it's a global event, kind of pulling in the likes of uh, you know. Uh, You'll see Harto, uh, Gervasoni, Vendôme, these sorts of big household names showcasing their wares there. And it, that's uh, celebrating its 30th year this year. And, and I guess off the back of that, there's been a, a host of spin-off events. There's a, a heap of different brands put on showcases in the city, in their whether they, they take over a gallery or in their own showrooms, uh, sort of, <laughs> I, I guess, shirking the actual trade hall to, to do their own things and, and beat their, their own drum. Uh, and I understand the appeal of that. It's kind of nice not to be in the trade hall, but 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 really, that's the the genesis for the event taking, or, or genesis for the activity that takes place mm-hmm. in Paris this week. Paris Deco Off and, and Paris Deco Home are two fairs that I guess, in my mind, sort of piggyback off the back of Maison Objet. These are uh, Deco Off is is really dedicated to textiles, so you'll see brands like Sacco and uh, who are owned by Cadrat and uh, Fonacetti, uh, Ligne Rosette is also doing something as well off the back of that, and it's it's these brands that are. Uh, uh, again, using, I guess, Maison Objet as a chance to come together and, and showcase their wares. So, I mean, off the back of that, a host of different events and cocktails and, and parties spin off. Okay. And what are you excited about seeing and what parties are you going to go to? Um, great question. I'm glad you I'm glad you went with the parties uh, because really that's... that's uh, look, I'll, I'll be there obviously doing some research and collecting some stories for the magazine. Uh, but also, uh, I, I guess it's about the community coming together. So Tiptoe, uh, who Monocle, uh, we, we recently did a collaboration on a stool with them. Uh, We've had a pop-up in their flagship in Paris for the last couple of months, so we're sort of doing a closing party for that, so I'll definitely be there. Um, And then in in more serious, you know, uh, I guess design journalism work. I'm, I'm particularly excited about Tolex. Uh, they are also having a party, but I'm also excited about their collection. Uh, so they're, they're a heritage uh, French brand established in 1923. Uh, a couple of years ago, were purchased by uh, some ex-fashion CEOs, uh, one former Balmain uh, CEO, and they're essentially trying to take the same principles uh, that fashion brands have used to protect the know-how and the craft and the manufacturing of heritage houses uh, by buying up uh, their own atelier and their craftspeople, and they're they're applying that to furniture. So they've... uh, purchase their own factory to make sure that the the craft and the know-how stays in the firm. And then they're also, I guess, kind of looking at uh, not reinventing the wheel every time, but considering seasonal releases and new colourways and sort of keeping, I guess, a a very simple, very uh, limited range of products exciting and and fresh and not not necessarily seeing themselves as having to to invent a complete new line of product every season. Mm. Uh, And finally, why are these events important and how are they set apart from other fairs around the world. 
I think they're important. I mean, I touched on the sort of gathering of the community. I do think that is important in terms of giving people a moment to show their latest wares, to have some cross-pollination for, you know, designers to meet various different brands. That's that's obviously hugely, hugely significant. But I, I also think... Uh, you know, giving a, a community a moment and celebrating that moment, I think particularly for the French brands, uh, this is sort of, I guess, the, the highlight of their year, particularly for the small brands. It, it really puts them on the world stage in a way that maybe they wouldn't if they were just uh, releasing a, a new product uh, that wasn't to coincide with an event. So I, I think I think there's those two things. It's the coming together, but it's also giving a, giving a platform for, for lesser-known brands to, to show their wares. Nick Manise, thank you very much for joining us. To Switzerland now, where the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos has kicked off. Our deputy head of radio, Tom Webb, and senior foreign correspondent, Carlotta Rabello, are down the line from Davos. Um, Morning, guys. What's the mood in the mountain? Hello, Vinny. Good morning. Uh, I don't want you to be too jealous, but we're sitting in a wooden chalet with 10 inches of snow on top of us in the sun, just overlooking the Congress Centre. It's just kicked off here. About lunchtime Monday is when you can expect the VIP 60 heads of state arriving and we're in the hub culture chalet pavilion this is part of the hub culture davos leadership campus it's these beautiful buildings outside of the main center where the public can come and take part in events and discussions and we've built a studio within the chalet and we're going to be broadcasting live here over the next week not jealous at all so who have you spoken to so far So this morning we did manage to grab Mirek Dushek, who is the managing director of the World Economic Forum. He's in charge of the entire program, not just what's going on in the Congress Centre, but also the talks outside of it. Now, he's very optimistic about 2024, despite the gloomy agenda that he has put together with uh, global global conflicts and an energy crisis as well. However, the optimism is about the businesses that have shown up here. Uh, who have access to the world leaders. Uh, There is a business in carbon capture, for example, who were talking to world leaders about how they can use it. So it's it's the forum where the good conversations can start changing the, the negative agenda that has been set. And Carlotta, what else do we have coming up? So the, as Tom was saying, today is really the first uh, uh, the first afternoon where everyone is descending into town. I myself have an eye on the World Economic Forum's Urban Transformation Centre, which of course has a programme dedicated to what is happening in the future of our cities. There's a mayor's roundtable happening uh, tomorrow uh, with all the mayors who are in town, uh, on top of all those world leaders that uh, we all know. And also there's a, a few discussions on the future of the nighttime economy, uh, 
over tourism, how it is impacting cities and how it can be, um, how tourism can be done in a more sustainable manner. And then other things that go into creating more sustainable building materials uh, to, you know, promoting architecture that, that is focused on timber and on those sustainability goals. I think when you're surrounding by these beautiful mountains, as uh, Tom beautifully described, uh, the snow is beautiful, even though it can be quite treacherous to bring studio <laughs> equipment all the way up to Davos <laughs> through it. But it, it is impossible to uh, to ignore uh, even more so the the dangers posed by climate change. And I feel like that is a topic that is uh, being peppered through, through all, all the conversations from the economy to uh, city conversations to materials. And there's a, an area here, the, the ice village uh, within the Congress Centre, which a lot of the conversations there are exactly on this and, you know, the greener future and how to ensure, you know, that uh, we can leave this uh, annual meeting with solutions rather than just challenges. And Carlotta, you're a Davos veteran. How is the mood different to previous years? You know what, Vinny, this is one of the years that has the most media attention. Uh, we're still trying to figure out exactly uh, why, because everyone thought, obviously, that last year would be said year. It was the first full-on Davos post-pandemic. Uh, Davos, um, during COVID, uh, the World Economic Forum took a break, and then it came back on a summer uh, World Economic Forum annual meeting, which was very strange to be here when you don't have to go through the snow and when it's uh, really warm. Um, and then it last year was the first time it came back and everyone thought that would be the year. But there is an immense buzz around uh, the annual meeting this time. Even just today, we arrived yesterday to start with our setup. And traditionally, Sunday is the day that uh, you arrive and, you know, finishing touches are being put on the houses, on the promenade. People are still kind of setting things up because it's really from Monday afternoon that it kicks off. But yesterday already, you know, we uh, had to wait at the security checkpoints and our passports got verified, something that usually only happens a bit later into the week. So there is a lot of um, attention this time around. And certainly there are more people in town. I think it's the record for accredited um, attendees. These are the white badgers, so the people actually taking part in the closed sessions within the forum, those who hopefully can go back to their home countries and organisations with said solutions. Well, Tom Webb and Carlos Ravello, enjoy your chalet this week and thank you very much for checking in with us. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. And that's all for this edition. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Laura Kramer. Our studio manager was Mariella Bevan. The Briefing is back at the same time tomorrow with me, Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye and thank you for listening. <laughs>